Good morning. How are you guys doing? All right. So, a third of you guys showing signs of life. You guys sleep well? Who got a uh, Who got more than uh, five hours of sleep? More than uh, six? Seven? Eight? Oh, just a few? Okay. I'm encouraged by that, you know, like, when, uh, when students get eight hours of sleep at a retreat, it's a, a sign of uh, God's miraculous power. Um, but, again, it's good to be with you this morning. Like Pastor Eric mentioned, you know, I will not be offended if you fall asleep. I have fallen asleep on preachers far better than myself, so I'll just take that as a, as a nod to my preaching abilities, but um, yeah, if you need to stand or whatever you need to do, uh, go ahead, feel free to do that, but um, we are going to continue our theme of treasuring Jesus Christ, and our topic for this morning is the process, uh, the process, and then I'll, I'll get more to explain what that means, but we're going to be in Philippians again, uh, all four messages for this weekend will be studying from the book of Philippians. And so if you have your copy of God's Word, go ahead and turn in them to Philippians chapter 2. And we'll be looking only at two verses, keeping it easy on you guys. Uh, verses 12 and 13. So I'll read our passage for us, these two verses, and then we'll pray uh, really briefly for the Lord's help. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. This is the word of God. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For, or because, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. Let's pray. And God, we pray that you would be faithful to your word. Even as we've just read, that you would be active. That you would energize us and be at work in our hearts to desire the things of you. To be attentive with not only our ears, but with our hearts. And to embrace what you have in store for us. What you will teach us through your holy word as good and profitable that it would inform and change the way we live, that we would strive to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And so God, please be with us now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So last night, we kind of gave a survey of where we're heading this weekend. That treasuring Jesus Christ entails various things. It means that we actually know this person, right? We can't treasure someone we don't know. And so knowing Christ... It means treasuring, trusting, and transforming. That as we treasure Jesus, we should become more and more like him. And uh, this is kind of the subject we want to tackle this morning. That when we treasure Jesus, it's not just, okay, I'm done. My eternity is secured. I have salvation. And so I'm just going to coast through. When we treasure Jesus, we don't cross the finish line. We've only entered the race. The process has just begun. And like I mentioned, when you treasure something, it transforms the way you live. We touched on this briefly last night, right? Like we can all see this uh, 
taking place in their lives. That when you treasure your grades, you study hard for the next exam or you're always looking at your report card. You know, good, still a 4.0. When you treasure your appearance, how you look, you're always searching for the next article to add to your wardrobe or you're often caught and mind yourself in the mirror. You know, good, still beautiful. You see, treasuring by nature just transforms you. It affects your life, how you live. And this principle is true even when it comes to Jesus and treasuring up. Just listen to how our Lord and Savior describes this transformation in the Bible. He says a child will hate his family to follow Christ. That a merchant sells all his possessions to obtain that one pearl. That a man will willingly go bankrupt in order to fund a purchase for a new property. Why? Because there's treasure hidden in that field. You see, treasuring Jesus makes you do things that you would never do before and makes you refrain from things you'd always do before. Now, what is the actual process of this transformation? How does it happen? What does it look like? You've probably heard that illustration about stapling apples to a tree um, and how that's foolishness to think that that converts that tree, if it's not bearing fruit, to becoming all of a sudden an apple tree. And that's backwards. We get that. But at the, same tr- t- at the same time, if it's truly an apple tree, you do expect fruit. You expect a genuine apple tree to produce apples. And so in the same, we, yes, as Christians, are saved sheerly by the grace and work of God. But at the same time, the proof of His work, the evidence of planted faith, is in the fruit we bear. And there's no denying this is a tricky idea, but it's an important one because it allows us to engage in our life and live in obedience to God. And in these two verses, Paul seeks, he attempts to tackle this thorny and difficult issue. That as we treasure Jesus, we ought to become more and more like him. And we all know this isn't something that is accomplished overnight. This is gradual. This is, hence, a process. That in our sanctification, which is just a fancy word for becoming more and more like Jesus, our growth as Christians, as followers of Christ, takes place when we work and when God works. And we have to hold both in proper balance. Paul is going to show us how. We work out... Because God works in, which will be our outline for this morning. So first, we work out. The process of transformation occurs when first we work out. Verse 12, look again in your Bibles. Paul says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, we have to examine where our passage is located. It follows on the heels of one of the most glorious and famous sections of Scripture. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 11, marries the humility and majesty of Jesus Christ. 
And what Paul does is he, he just is joyful and rejoices over Jesus' condescension. That our Lord and Savior actually comes to us as one of us. He takes on the posture of a servant, dies the death of a criminal, crucified on the cross. And yet, the last note Paul sounds off on is loud with hope. This humble servant who dies is also the exalted Lord who rises. And one glorious day, every tongue will confess him as such in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And having our hearts moved by such a powerful and rich passage, you would expect Paul to maintain this moment of wonder, right? By, by just stepping into the background and uh, leaving us to bask in Jesus' glory. At least I do, because that's what we usually do at retreats, right? You know, after a, a great message, we dim the lights, play that minor key song, and we just all cry together about how beautiful Jesus is. But Paul actually surprises us because he goes from the worship of Christ to working for Christ. That true worship of Jesus inspires true Christians to work. In other words, the treasure transforms, which is exactly why he introduces our verses with that key word, therefore. The obedience of Jesus Christ, as previously described, demands imitation. The obedience of Christ demands the obedience of Christians. And so with affection, Paul can be straightforward, blunt, and command us firmly, therefore, followers of Jesus, walk in his footsteps and work out your salvation. This is the only command, the only imperative in these two verses. All these splendid descriptions of Jesus, what he has done, come to a head. Come to a breaking point, a crossroad, in which you decide now how you respond. Whether you obey and work out your salvation. And maybe you hesitate because you've been brought up in a good Christian family. At a solid Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. And you think to yourself, well... We're all about grace and God getting the glory for what he does. I thought salvation is a work of God. But now here in this text, Paul is saying, work out your salvation. So which is it? Is it God working or is it us? And the answer is yes, both. You see, the confusion is a result for how rich and versatile the word salvation is. I'll give you an example. Think of the word Facebook. Facebook, right? I'm guessing most of you automatically thought of the social media platform. That internet web page where you can connect with all your friends, post those goofy photos of each other, and like each other's uh, comments, right? And that's 90% of the time we think of the internet. But that word Facebook could also be a reference to the actual company. Right? with employees who work for this business started by the CEO, Mark Zuckerberg. Now, typically, what's going on is when we think of the word salvation, we think of being forgiven of our sins and being made right with God. It's what these smart people call initial salvation or 
justification. When we are justified, when we are reconciled to God, the moment we repent of our sins and place our trust in Jesus Christ, His life, death, and resurrection. And this justification, this aspect of salvation, is instantaneous. God declares us righteous, and it's done. And certainly, justification is a major component. One of the main definitions of salvation It's what we usually refer to or emphasize when the word salvation is used. But justification is one part. One definition contained within the larger, grander, bigger word of salvation. And so salvation, yes, it includes getting saved. But you could say a second definition is also in reference to the life from then on. That we not only believe in Jesus, but then we become like Him. You see, the word salvation includes God's complete work of redemption. From beginning to end. From justification, from when we are initially saved, to the process of becoming more like Christ. Sanctification. Christian growth. Until glorification, when we will be perfected in heaven and with Christ forever. And all this is packaged into this one powerful, potent word, salvation. So here in our passage, when Paul is charging us to work out salvation, what he has in mind isn't salvation in the sense of justification, of of earning our eternal life. What he has in mind is sanctification. And that's why Paul is very precise in this verse as we are in our outline. So hear me clearly. We are called to work out our salvation, not to work for our salvation. You see the difference? Work out our salvation as if it is something given to us, planted in us, not work for our salvation like it's something we earn. Which means we don't do Christian things To become Christian, we do Christian things because we are Christians. You understand? This is how identity always works. Because what you do flows out of who you are. That as sinners, we sin because we are sinners. Sinning doesn't make us sinners. That stealing doesn't make you a thief. You steal because you are a thief. And so the same once converted to Christ. You don't do Christian things to fake it, to become a Christian. You do Christian things because you are a Christian. That if you receive salvation, it's going to flow out in how you live out your life. So work out your salvation. And guys, you and I will need to work. You know, let's say you got really lucky. And you inherited land sitting on top of these deep oil mines... Enough to make you a billionaire. Well, you won't be rich without one necessary step. Regardless of how lucky you are to inherit and own that rich land, you can't tap into all of that oil underneath unless you do the hard work of drilling, of mining. You got to do it. So Paul is saying, Christian, look, you have many blessings Many promises given to you inherited through the scriptures. But regardless of how lucky, how fortunate you are to inherit these promises, 
You cannot tap into the wealth and power of these promises unless you do your part, unless you get to work. And this is so crucial, so important for us to understand because it shows us the dynamics, how all the pieces of the puzzle fit together. That yes, God is at work, but His work doesn't make us passive. God's work doesn't eliminate us from doing work. Instead, it actually motivates us to get to work, to work out our salvation. It paves the pathway. This command stresses that this ought to be the continuous effort of the believer. It's a picture of unceasing labor, of diligently toiling to fight sin and follow Christ day in and day out. But guys, take heart, because you can take God at His word. It's right here in this verse that we can grow in holiness. So while leaning on His word and trusting in His promise, do your part. Muster with all your might to fight the temptation to grumble, to be lazy, to gossip about others behind their backs. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for godly desires. Buckle down to read your Bibles. Bring your bodies to church. Flee to the cross. Look at Christ. That as you behold Him, you become more and more like Him. Paul gives us more instruction. He provides us two areas we're to pay attention to as we work out our salvation. First, you could say these are subpoints. When we work. When we work. Now, earlier in this verse, Paul encourages the Philippians to obey this command. But he also qualifies. He says, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. You see, he's cautioning us. Do not let the situation or circumstances determine when you obey, when you actually strive for sanctification, for growth. Strive, grow, Regardless of who's around you, regardless of who's watching, regardless of who's in front of you. And I think we need to heed, listen to this warning. Because God is so gracious to give us a good church, a great youth group, encouraging brothers and sisters in Christ who will spur us on as believers. But we need to be careful that these blessings don't become the foundation of our faith. We must be careful that these blessings that God provides don't turn into opportunities to fake our faith rather than opportunities to really grow in our faith. Sometimes the danger in our circles where godliness is praised, something that is to be desired, the temptation is just to put up a front, right? To pretend to be zealous at working out your salvation merely for show so that people will pat you on the back and give you their stamp of approval but the true test of genuine faith is who you are when you're alone the sign of true maturity is whether you still are working out your salvation when you have no audience but God Uh, I have a son he's finally here he's in the back you'll probably hear him later on just causing a ruckus because he's sinful. But uh, he's only two and a half. No, not even two and a half. A little over two. And as cute as ever it is, you know, um, as a parent, I I know I have to take care of him. 
but I don't want to be changing his diaper for the rest of his life, right? Like, I don't want to be changing his diaper when he's 16 in high school and say, like, all right, Everett, before you go out for your school dance, you let daddy help you out and slap on some fresh pampers. No, I don't want to do that, right? All parents teach, correct their children so that they might eventually be able to stand upon their own two feet, that they might become independent for life. They want their kids to act with integrity, to show compassion to others, to behave properly, not only when mom and dad are around, but especially when they're not. When they are people of character, regardless of who's present or what the situation is, well, that's when maturity has seriously taken root. That's when growth has really happened. And Paul here, as a spiritual father, he wants to nurture us towards spiritual maturity. Because when we come before God, when we have to give an account for our lives, it's not going to matter what we appear to be before other people, but who we actually are before God. And this connects well with what comes next. The second area, the second sub-point, Paul points out, is not only when we work, but how we work. He says, with fear and trembling. With fear and trembling, how we work. You know, if you go to some of our nation's landmarks, say uh, the Grand Canyon, you stand on the edge of that cliff and you scoop forward and peer into the bottomless Grand Canyon, you're filled with two overwhelming feelings. One, you are watchful. You're scared, fearful that a careless step will put you over the edge and falling to your death. And yet, secondly, at the same time, as dangerous as it is, the deadly drop can't stop yourself from being curious, right? There's a thrill running up your back. And so you inch as close as you can to the cliff and marvel at the glory of such a view. And this is the background scene that Paul is painting for us for how we work out our salvation. We're to do so with fear and trembling. And these two words, fear and trembling, are often used to describe the response of people in the presence of Almighty God. That there is both fear and trembling. There is a watchfulness and yet a wonder. There is seriousness to coming before God and yet being amazed at His splendor. It's approaching the Grand Canyon in a person. Knowing that the sheer holiness of God himself could incinerate you to ashes. And yet being so captivated by who he is, by his glory, that you can't look or move away. This language is Paul's attempt to plant God right in front of us. The challenge for us as we work out our salvation is to not treat it like it's some other duty but to see God to see God in this endeavor in this responsibility and here's what I mean we have a tendency to treat our faith just like anything else like it's a household chore like washing the dishes or a school assignment that we need to turn in and so we'll grade our spirituality based upon the number of Bible chapters I've read this morning the amount of time I spent in prayer this morning and I'm not saying reading the Bible or praying are bad things, or bad disciplines. They are excellent means of grace. We should be excelling in them, striving to grow in them. But we have to be very careful 
of adopting a, a legalistic approach to it. You know, kind of whipping ourselves on the back when we're in a rut or rewarding ourselves with a gold star when we're doing well. Paul doesn't define our sanctification, our growth in Christ in legal terms, but he frames it in our relationship to Jesus, knowing and loving and serving him. And I think that's so insightful and wise because when our focus is only upon our legal standing with God, well, then our lives are only affected on legal levels. When people are watching with outward appearances, with everything built upon rules, do's and don'ts and rigid laws, but when our focus appreciates, yes, our right standing with God, but it penetrates to the one who has accomplished it, when we celebrate the joy of knowing God through treasuring Jesus Christ, then we're mesmerized by a person. We're captivated by a relationship and drawn to Him. We are affected no longer just on upkeep and a legal level, but on the heart level. Wanting to obey and work, working to please God regardless of, the, of what the world may think, of who's watching and any superficial spiritual measuring stick that we've made ourselves. We're no longer then focused on being what we think a good Christian should look like. We're just focused on God. And so we read our Bibles with fear and trembling because we fear and tremble before God. We pray with fear and trembling because we fear and tremble before God. Not our Sunday school program not our pastor at church. We serve, sacrifice, and love people with fear and trembling because we serve, sacrifice, and love God himself. And that's why working out your salvation must start with God, with him. As we get busy in this process, there's the other side of the coin we must never forget. Paul transitions from we work out our second main point, God works in. God works in. And listen, the two always come hand in hand. They work together. Look at verse 13. For because, so there's the connection, because it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now if you really consider verse 12, I think it can be very scary, very daunting, very overwhelming. Because who by their own efforts, who by their own smarts, skills, ability, discipline, and power can become more like Jesus? We're talking about Jesus here. Well, verse 13 provides us with some comfort, some reassurance that we are not left to this goal by ourselves. In fact, everything about verse 13 stresses and emphasizes God's ability, God's power, God's agency. God is placed first in the sentence to spotlight who's on the front line, who is toiling on our behalf. And Paul describes God as one who works in you. This is something so important because he is adamant about it. Hear this, he wants your holiness more than you do, Christian. There were a series of uh, Energizer battery commercials in the 90s that were pretty popular. Uh, 
imagine most of you are too young, myself included. I only know about this stuff from asking older people. Um, but if you're curious, you can look up these commercials on YouTube after retreat. But in every one of these Energizer battery commercials, what they would do is they would have this pink stuffed bunny, powered by batteries, moving along, beating a drum. And if this bunny was powered by a different brand of batteries, eventually the bunny would come to a halt, stop playing the drum, and essentially die. I know that's morbid, uh, but that's Energizer for you. But as long as this bunny was powered by the Energizer brand, the bunny would keep moving around, playing his drum. He'd be alive and happy. And the commercial would always end with the bunny pressing on while the tagline was narrated. Long-lasting Energizer buddy batteries keep going and going and going and going. And these commercials were quite annoying, but that was the point. The power for the Energizer bunny to continue came from the Energizer battery. And so sure, the bunny marched on. Sure, the bunny played the drum, but without this battery, the bunny wouldn't work. And it's the same in this process of transformation. God is the energizer so that we may keep going on and on and on. In fact, this very verb for work is energeo, which we derive the word energy. Right? These sound very similar. Energize. And this word is used only for supernatural work, specifically God's work. And so what Paul is doing here is he is dazzling us with an explosive picture. He's saying, look at God and consider who he is. He is the one who speaks creation into being, who dangles the stars across the skies, who balances galaxies upon his finger who breathes life into dust and raises the dead without breaking a sweat. This is your God, and he vows in this verse to be at work in his children. The very God who powerfully energizes you to be transformed. Listen, that should be encouraging. I don't want to work unless God is at work. But because he works, I can Verses 12 and 13 are linked together as effect and cause. And we need to get that right. Our work is the effect, and God's work is primary. God's work is the cause. I think we need to get that right because often we live in the reverse, in the opposite. We secretly believe that we are the cause, right? And that God's work is then the effect. For some of us, this is our temptation. You have a program set up for how you're going to work on your Christian faith and grow. And so you think to yourself, if this is all that is required, well then once I spend X minutes in the Word, Y minutes praying, Z minutes at church, then presto, spiritual maturity is guaranteed to be mine. And pride runs wild, while the power of God runs dry. You read verse 12 and you're all pumped up. But you read it to the neglect of verse 13. Verse 13 is settling us down, calming us down, putting us in our place. If we really believe God's work to be the cause, then rather than gloat and boast about our growth, we praise Him. We're humble. 
if we really believe God's work to be the cause, yes, we work out our salvation, but always with the attitude of complete dependence upon Him. Students, where do you land on the spectrum? Where do you land? Are you more likely to fall back on verse 12? You know, thinking your faith comes down only to what you do. Then my charge to you would be humbly lean forward into verse 13. And labor, work, more in trusting and thanking God. For others of you, are you more likely to rest on verse 13? Thinking, okay, if God's at work, then I don't need to do anything. Abusing God's promise as an excuse to be lazy, to be inactive. Well, then launch yourself back into verse 12 and labor, work more in fear and trembling because it is God who is at work. We discover here that God works in a particular fashion. Our only sub point for this main point is how God works. How God works. Verse 13 ends by explaining the mechanics. Paul is lifting the hood and showing us how the engine runs. God's work affects both our will and our work. You see, we will never work in opposition against our will, our desires. We naturally do what we want. We do what we want, whether we're sinners or Christians. Will and work, therefore, go hand in hand. And that's why when God grows us, it is always, always through holy affections. He gives us new desires, godly desires. He grants us new eyes, new taste buds, things which once appeared dull and bland, like singing praise songs or serving one another, or things we were once blinded to, like the grace of Jesus Christ. All those things are changed and transformed. They come to life, and therefore our lives are transformed. We now look and linger over Jesus and live differently. Now, of course, this doesn't happen overnight. And it doesn't happen perfectly. But if you are legitimately saved, if you are a genuine, authentic Christian, once you've come to Christ, you should begin to notice that the direction of your life is changing. You're no longer just rambling in prayer. You are now communing with the thrice holy God. You're no longer just dragging your feet to church. You actually desire to be with God and His people. So be encouraged. God doesn't create Christian hypocrites. He works in our hearts, not merely to work out our salvation, but He works in our hearts in such a way that we want to work out our salvation. Yes, sometimes... God's demands seem impossible to fulfill. Kill pride, die to self, love that annoying classmate, sacrifice for others. But let this verse feed your soul. God doesn't demand of us anything we can't do with Him. You can't outwork God. What God requires, He supplies. Do you see how encouraging this is? There's not a battle against sin you go into by yourself, on your own. There's not a pursuit of godliness you seek by yourself, on your own. When you are reciting scripture in the face of temptation, when you're gripping the sword of his promises in his word, God is picking up the sword with your hand. 
When you're petitioning in prayer for godly obedience, for strength to say no to sin and for holy living, when you are begging, broken on your knees for change and transformation, God is bending down to hear your prayer and coming through on His promises to you. We are empowered to work out because He mightily works within us. I love being a father. I mentioned my son, Everett. I also have a girl who's four and a half, uh, Madison. And one of the best parts about being a a father to uh, Maddie is when she holds my hand. You know, she's at an age where she's uh, more curious, more mobile, and she'll get into more trouble. And oftentimes, uh, on one of her adventures, she'll reach out for my hand for security. And her four little fingers kind of wrap around my pinky. And in those moments, you would see the the manliest person you've ever known melt into a human puddle of emotions. But when Maddie holds my hand and leads me, you know, I'll, I'll follow along. I'll play along. And, and this injects her with a load of confidence. She's brave. She's bold to go explore. She can work. She can carry on with her plans to search out new areas or approach that yappy little dog. She is empowered to act. But while she knows dad is near, watching her, holding her hand, she still needs to be the one to work, right? She needs to put one foot in front of another to go up the hill. She needs to be the one to reach out and pet that ugly chihuahua. My presence doesn't make her motionless. My presence is the very reason she's free to move forward. Now who's really holding who? Clearly, anyone rightly viewing this situation will conclude, I, as the father, am upholding my daughter. Sure, she has her little fingers weaved into mine, but the grip that really matters is the one I have. And in sanctification, in the process of becoming more and more like Jesus, in the Christian walk, it's the same. These two verses warm our hearts to this tender relation. This is the process we begin on when we treasure Jesus Christ, that we are called to work out our salvation, wrapping our tiny fingers around the hand of the one who holds everything in his. And when we do, we walk comforted and empowered because God is the one who is truly holding us. Let's pray. Lord, your word is so helpful to us because it teaches us that we are not alone. And I know for the students especially, sometimes in, in living like a Christian, it can feel like they're isolated or on their own, left to their own abilities and wisdom on how to be a Christian. But God, you are faithful to your children. You do not abandon us. And you have given us your word. And in your word, you tell us, God, that you are at work and that you have provided other people to encourage us on the race of faith. And so, Lord, may we approach this both with hope and also seriousness to understand that if you are at work, then you desire us to also work out our salvation in every regard, in all circumstances and situations with fear and trembling. And so, Lord, continue to use your word to convict our hearts Give us eyes to see areas that we need to grow in and give us the humility 
then to pray for power, to use the church as a resource that we might grow in obedience to Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.